Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you dwell within us and you dwell among us, Lord God. And we just pray there's this time now as we look at your word that you will show us the things that we should know. Jesus, we thank you for the life that you give us. And we just praise you this day. Help our ears to hear, our hearts to understand so that we might grow more and more like you, Lord. Amen. We've been looking at the life of the Apostle Peter over the last little while. He's one of the prominent people in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. We have seen his highs and lows, his courage and boldness, and also his failures and fears. We saw how he became one of the main leaders of the early church. Today we're going to start looking at one of the letters he wrote to the early Christians, entitled, amazingly enough, one Peter. As we look at the start of this book, we see that he states who he is writing to and who he is. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter sets forth his authority from the start. He's an apostle, one set out by Jesus with authority from Jesus. He doesn't need to establish any more credentials than that. That's sufficient. He is writing to believers chosen by God and set apart by him. Peter refers to them as exiles, and they are this in two ways. They've been scattered throughout the world. The areas Peter mentions are five Roman provinces in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. These believers were not together in one place like many of the other recipients of other letters in the Bible. They were scattered about. The letter that Peter writes would have been carried around to each group and read out to them. There's a bit of disagreement by modern-day writers as to whether the people that Peter was writing to were Jewish or Gentile believers. Different parts of the letter seem to be aimed at different groups. I've read some of the commentators saying, well, they were definitely Jewish, and they'll quote parts of Peter's letter that seem to be specifically aimed at Jewish people. And then other ones will say, oh, no, no, they must be Gentiles. And they'll quote different parts of the letter, which seem to be written to Gentile believers. I mean, I can't really see why the recipients couldn't be a mixture of both, particularly as they were scattered around in different places. It wasn't just one sort of set group in one place. It was different groups in different places. They are also exiles because no matter what their background was, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Gentile, By accepting Christ as Lord, they have alienated themselves from the society they were used to. They no longer fitted with the culture and practices of their previous way of life. Because of this, they were suffering persecution. And Peter writes to teach, encourage and strengthen them. He wants them to trust Christ, to realise that persecution is part of the Christian life and is only temporary. He encourages them to stand firm in their faith and to keep their eyes on Jesus and on the hope they have in him. 
He's not writing to give them an answer as to why God would let them suffer. Rather, he tells them that persecution is not unexpected. It is not a sign that everything has gone wrong, that faith isn't enough. Instead, he wants to show them how to live in the midst of this, how to stay faithful, how to stay focused on what is important. He urges them to remain steadfast in the face of persecution, to remember the privilege they have as God's chosen people and to live in a way that honours and glorifies God. In his opening words, he speaks of all three persons of the Trinity. He talks of the sovereignty and plan of God the Father, of the Father's complete knowledge. He talks of the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us, in causing us to mature into the person that God intended us as we obey Jesus. And he talks of how the blood of Jesus is the atonement, the payment for our sin, how we are washed clean by his blood. Those listening who were Jewish believers would know how on the Day of Atonement the high priest would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Here Peter reminds them that God himself has provided the complete sacrifice and payment for sin. When he finishes the introduction with may grace and peace be multiplied to you, He truly wanted these believers to live with the grace and peace that was available in Christ. He knows that they are facing harsh times and that they needed God's grace and peace as they went through these things. Peter experienced grace and peace from God and he wanted them to look beyond their circumstances to what they had received and continued to receive as they followed Jesus. Peter wanted grace and peace to be poured out on them, to protect them and define them. God's grace and peace is there for us, no matter what we face. This prayer is a good one to pray for ourselves and for other believers, particularly in difficult times. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's next step is to praise God. This is not by accident or tradition. When Peter considers the salvation that God has provided, praise just pours out of him. It's what he does. He wants to draw his readers' attention to this also. He wants them to start with praise. No matter what's happening in our lives, God is always deserving of praise. He is still the same magnificent, glorious, powerful God. So often we can forget that. We get overcome by what we're facing. And instead of giving God praise, we start to complain or we start to pour out our troubles to him, which is fine to do, but we need to remember to start with praise, that God is still the same. He's still worthy of praise. Peter then talks of God's mercy. God's mercy is incredible. It is unfathomable. It is not stinted or restricted. 
This version says it is great. Other versions say vast or abundant. There's no limit to God's mercy and it's freely available. God's mercy means we don't suffer the punishment that we deserve for our sin. God's mercy has protected us from that. A good quote about mercy by Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century preacher, says, No other attribute could have helped us had mercy refused. As we are by nature, justice condemns us, holiness frowns upon us, power crushes us, truth confirms the threat of the law, and wrath fulfills it. It is from the mercy of God that all our hopes begin. Because of God's mercy, we're no longer dead in our sins. But just as Peter reminds these readers, we have been born again. Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Peter emphasises that their life has changed completely. They have a totally new start. 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm sure you will know this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new birth is not into the same life as they had before, into the same thinking and practices, but into something that is new, into a living hope. Peter uses the word living six times in this letter. He wants to make sure that they understand what they now have. The hope they have isn't something that can fail like most human hopes. It isn't empty or deceptive or false. I'm sure you can all remember a time when you've really hoped for something, something that seemed certain, something that you really wanted or needed, something that you were sure that would come about. And then for often an unknown reason, it failed. It didn't happen. Your hope was crushed. And you were left confused and unsure and just wondering what was going on because you were so sure that that hope was going to be fulfilled and it wasn't. The hope that we have in Jesus is certain and secure. We know this because Jesus has risen from the dead. The sacrifice that he made for our sin is sufficient and true. That's why it's a living hope because it's based in the person of Jesus, God himself, who died and rose again, crushing the power of sin and death, who lives forevermore. That's why it's that living hope. And as we put our trust in him, we too will, through his sacrifice, overcome sin and death and live eternally with him. In his presence, we will be with him. Because of this, we have been given an inheritance which is above anything else. It's an inheritance that we haven't earned and haven't deserved. Look at the words Peter uses for this inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Often we can hope for an inheritance. Maybe you've got a relative that you're hoping will leave you some money that when they die, but you, you don't really know. It might be soon. They may have said they will, but until they're actually gone, you don't know that you're going to get this inheritance. But we can trust in this inheritance that God has for us. 
We can trust because it's what God has promised. And we see here these words, it's imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Imperishable is something that lasts. It's indestructible. It can't be damaged. It can't be destroyed. It endures forever. Undefiled means it's not corrupted or stained. It is unblemished. It's pure. Unfading means it's always the same. It doesn't lose value. It doesn't diminish in any way. I'm sure you've all had maybe some curtains or some furniture or whatever that's faded and so disappointing because you think, oh, it was so lovely when it was new and when it looked so good and now it's not really worth anything. But the inheritance that God's given us, it's unfading. I love that term unfading actually in this passage because you have that sense it's just as beautiful, it's just as new as when it was first declared and that's the inheritance we have. And it says it's kept in heaven for us. Is protected, guarded, and set aside for each one of us. Each one of you, if you have trusted in Jesus, has that inheritance. It's a living hope. It's sure. It's secure. Then Peter speaks of how through God's power we are guarded through faith for salvation. This talks of the continuing relationship we have with him. A relationship of faith where God is actively involved in our lives protecting us while we in faith continue to trust and obey him. This would have been reassuring to Peter's readers who were struggling with their faith, wondering why they were facing the trials they were in and what God was doing. Peter directs their minds to what God has done and continues to do. And it's encouragement for us too also when we start to doubt, to think that God doesn't hear or care, to think that we've been struggling with this and it doesn't seem to go away. It doesn't seem to get any easier. And we wonder why and what God is doing. We need to remember what God has done and what he promises to do and to remember that God's promises will be fulfilled. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Peter doesn't dismiss what they are facing. He recognises that they are distressed, they are in sorrow by what's happening to them. It's not just one situation, but as he said, it's various trials. The word used there actually means multicoloured. They've got like a whole spectrum of trials that are attacking them, all the different colours of the whole, you know, the whole thing. It's all various ones. It's not just one type of trial. It's not just one thing they have to deal with. There are many different ones that are coming against them. Each one of us will face difficulties as we live for Christ. At times we think we shouldn't be affected by what we face because others are going through so much worse. But any trial that we face as we live for God has the potential to hurt us, to affect us, to make us wonder about our faith, to so really shake us. It doesn't matter what the trial is, it has that potential. 
we need to remember what Peter then tells them. He says to rejoice because through these trials, their faith is being tested so the genuineness of it can be seen. He points out there's only a little time they have to face these trials because our life here on earth is just a small portion of our life in eternity. It can be hard to grasp that. We, we live each day and it seems like it's just so hard at times. But the reality is this is only a small portion of eternity when we will be in God's presence and every trial will be gone. It will be a beautiful place. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17 says the same thing. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I doubt any one of us wants to rejoice as we go through hard times. But I think that's why we're told to rejoice, because it's not what we naturally want to do. When we go through times that threaten to leave us torn and devastated... Yet it's only as we go through these times that we see where our faith is really based and how strong it is. When we go through these times of testing and we keep glorifying God, then the truth of God is seen, bringing praise to him. Another quote from one of Charles Spurgeon's works. Indeed, it is the honour of faith to be tried. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I've never had to believe under difficulties? Who knows whether thou hast any faith? Shall a man say, I have great faith in God, but I have never had to use it in anything more than the ordinary affairs of life, where I could probably have done without it as well as with it. Is this to the honour and praise of thy faith? Dost thou think that such a faith as this will bring any great glory to God or to bring to thee any great reward? If so, thou art mightily mistaken." He that has tested God and whom God has tested is the man that shall have it said of him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Our faith is tested to show it is sincere. It is tested to show the strength of it. If, as that Spurgeon quote shows, you've never had to rely on faith, if what you face every day you can accomplish through your own power, your own strength, then there's no opportunity to show how dependent you are on God's power and help and whether you do actually rely on him. Our life is meant to show the reality of God and his word. Unless our faith is put to the test, we will never know how genuine it is. God looks in us to see whether we're being changed into the likeness of Christ. Whether in the midst of difficulties we look to God and persevere. And not just go through it with gritted teeth, feeling like we're hanging on by a fingertip, but rather knowing that our life is in God's control and protection. And while we are distressed, we still rejoice in him and praise him. God hasn't changed. His mercy is still there for us. So often with trials, disasters, difficulties, we feel that God should rescue us without seeing that God is leading us through them and keeping us from being overcome. Think of verses that show this. The obvious one is Psalm 23 verse 4, a verse that you would know so well and probably have quoted at times. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then think of Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, 
You shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. With both these verses, we have to go through dangerous and potentially uh, uh, disastrous situations. But we are reassured that God is with us and hasn't abandoned us. He is there with us in all that we go through. And as we trust him to lead us, our faith is strengthened, our character is developed, and we become a living witness to God's glory and power. Our faith is tested to purify it, to burn away what is not true faith from what is. This passage talks of gold being refined. How is this processed by being subject to extreme heat that burns away any dross so you're only left with pure gold? Because gold is precious and needs to be pure. As our faith is more precious than gold, as we go through trials, this process is happening to us. That which isn't faith, which is not of God, is burnt away. And we are left with that which is pure and true. Often it's a lot less than what we expect. We think we have great faith and then suddenly we go through a trial and suddenly we realise we only have this small amount of faith. But it is enough. The faith endures in this process in our lives does bring praise to God because it shows the reality of Christ. James 1, chapter, sorry, James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Peter reminds them that even though they can't see God, they love him. Faith allows us to believe to see with spiritual eyes, to know the truth that what God has promised is real and will come to pass. We love God because we have experienced the reality of him in our lives. The joy of knowing God floods our lives. And as Peter says, it is inexpressible. It consumes and sustains us beyond human reasoning, beyond human explanation. It doesn't seem right that you can be joyful in the midst of trial. But that's why the Bible urges us to have joy in every situation because it's not dependent on our feelings or our circumstances. It's dependent on God. Peter goes on in the next verses to remind them that the salvation of God isn't some new story. It's not some new idea, something that someone has dreamed up to make people feel better about their lives. Christianity has been mocked as a pie-in-the-sky religion. Basically, you keep hoping for something that will never happen, that's not going to happen. But that's not the truth of it, because we have the promise of a saviour who would suffer for our sins, who would die but then rise again from the dead and then would reign in glory. That promise was told long before it happened. This wasn't some way of trying to fit it to the circumstances. It wasn't something that Jesus' followers came up with when he died and everything. Oh, Everything's been dashed. Okay, what can we come up with? Oh, let's pretend that he rose again. Let's pretend that it wasn't, it didn't actually, you know, that it wasn't actually a disaster, that it, something did happen. This wasn't that case. This was promised long before. And we see Peter say this in the next couple of verses. In 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you 
in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter points out that this was spoken about long ago by the prophets, people sent from God to declare what would happen. They spoke of what was to come, even though they didn't see it. They spoke out of faith, knowing what they said would come about at the right time, even though they couldn't fully understand what was meant. As they sought to find out who and what, they realised that they would not see it with their eyes. It was future generations who would. The readers of Peter's letter then and us today are privileged in that we see fully what God's plan of salvation is. Jesus emphasised this when he said to his followers in Matthew 13, 16 to 17, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. When Peter talks about salvation in verse 10, he speaks of grace, this grace that was to be yours. At the heart of salvation is God's grace. It is God's grace that saves us, just as we saw in those verses from Ephesians that I read out earlier in the sermon. God's grace and mercy is bound together in his love for us. We're going to take communion now. This first part of Peter's letter emphasises the salvation that we have, that we are saved and set free by the sacrifice of Jesus, that he died and rose again and now reigns in glory. We have been born into a living hope. We've been born again into that living hope, into that inheritance that will not change, that will not be taken away from us because of the great mercy and grace of God. Because of this, we rejoice in God, even though we face trials. Even as our faith is tested, we rejoice in God. As you take these emblems, remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that his blood was shed, his body was broken. Remember that God promised that the Saviour would come. Long before he did, God promised a Saviour would come. He promised what would happen, that Saviour would be crushed, that he would die but that he would rise again. And that happened at the right time. At the right time, Jesus came. Remember that the sacrifice of Jesus breaks the power of sin and death. It gives us a new birth into a living hope as we trust and obey him, as we give our lives to him. So as you take the emblem, let's eat together, remembering that Jesus' body was broken. And as you drink, remember that Jesus' blood was shed for our sake. And remember that he rose again and that he will come in glory, that we will see the inheritance with our eyes, that we will see him with our eyes. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you how this letter of Peter reminds us the basis of our faith. 
that our faith is in Jesus, not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in what we can do or anything like that, but our faith is in Jesus. And we thank you too, as we go through trials, Lord God, you are refining us that the realness of our faith can be seen, that what we really trust in can be seen. And even as you refine us, Lord, you are shaping us to be more like Christ. And I thank you, Lord God, for that living hope, for that inheritance that is secure and certain that we can really know that what you promise is true. I thank you that nothing can damage that, Lord God, because you hold it. It's protected in heaven for us, Lord. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice you made, that at the right time you came, you suffered, you died, but you rose again, and that you live in glory forevermore. Lord, help each of us to trust you Whatever trial, whatever we're going through, Lord God, if we're in a time when everything is peaceful and calm, that's brilliant. But help us to remember that even in that time, we need to look to you and to hear from you and trust you. And if we are going through various trials, like this passage says, Lord, help us to remember that you are there leading us through and help us to be joyful. Not to put on some fake happiness, but to be truly joyful because he who promised is faithful. Thank you, Lord God. Amen.